and uh, date this, which is uh, July 20th, 1993. And uh, I'm in the uh, lower Manhattan Village loft law office of uh, former United States Attorney General and uh, one time Alaska Federation of Natives, Washington, D.C. Council, Ramsey Clark. And I'm going to move the <coughs> tape over there. And I actually had a pretty good mic on. Okay. Um, well, I guess the. Think about talking that direction, it'll pick it up all right. Uh, yeah, or. Or you can move over yeah, here. Yeah, that way. That'll get you out of the sun, too. Great. And actually, as long as I'm going to do that, maybe I could take off yeah. the upper half of my costume. <laughs> yeah, I should have. Uh, <laughs> would you like a glass of iced tea? Oh, no, I'm fine. Sure. Well, I think the. Uh, maybe the best way to start would be uh, how you got involved in the Alaska issue to begin with. Uh, let me tell you the little I know, which is that through a whole variety of, of luck more than anything, I think, uh, Arthur Goldberg obviously had gotten in the spring of 1969 uh, involved with AFN. Uh, his brother, I mean his brother, his son Bob was up in Alaska, and, and Bob since moved to Virginia, and I've been missing each other, so I haven't been able to get the details, but I know that that initially Arthur Goldberg uh, had been representing AFN, and uh, the administration, of course, had rolled by that time, and and uh, former President Nixon, I believe, made you a campaign promise of, of uh, unemployment. unemployment, and I know that you ended up in that summer, I guess during the summer, at Paul Weiss down in D.C., and how did you, how'd you end up with Alaska Natives as a project? Well, my impression is that um, Justice Goldberg came into it virtually entirely through his son, which is natural and understandable and good. <clears throat> he um, didn't have a lot of background in, in the area geographically, subject matter, or otherwise. He was very committed and interested. In addition, he was in the midst of developing a new practice and getting ready to run for governor of New York. Huh. He ran for governor of New York in, in 70, I'm almost sure. Yeah, it was 70. <clears throat> and um, that took him completely off. I had joined Paul Weiss shortly after he did. We'd known each other in the government, of course. <coughs> I had headed what was then called the Lands Division for four years ago, back in the early 60s, <coughs> which has, um, or had, I think it still does, all U.S. litigation relating to Indian peoples even conflict that you you defend their suits and you represent them sometimes. But we had the Indian Claims Commission Act litigation, which was in the early 60s, really uh, in this early disposition stage. I mean, a lot of the act was passed in 46. I think in four years I settled many times more than cases and amounts paid than in the prior history. And we had um, cases involving Indian rights, water rights, 
<clears throat> if uh, it was water rights litigation, we would represent, and then claims in, in the water, fishing rights, uh, <clears throat> and suits against the Indian tribes we would represent uh, in many instances. And so I had <clears throat> I had that background experience. Um, at that time, I had an office in Washington as well as New York. So he asked me whether I would. I'm almost positive that my entire introduction to it was through Arthur Goldberg. And frankly, I think his participation ended very shortly after I began to get into it. For instance, I can remember hearings were coming up and uh, we were hopeful that he could he would testify that he was by that time out of the picture for whether it was the campaign or something else I don't recall. Well, well, I, I know that <coughs> right after you got involved in August of 69 there was a Senate hearing it was the second Senate hearing that Scoop had had on this <coughs> and you guys jointly testified the two of you both did he testify too yeah but then that's basically the last the last sighting of Justice Goldberg anywhere in the middle of this. Yeah, I'd even forgotten that he testified. I wonder if he actually went up or whether he just submitted No, he, he was there. He was there. He was there. But, but that, that was it. Was that there the same day? Yeah. That's interesting. I don't remember. Anyway, um, that's pretty much how I got into it. I, perhaps, you know, I had worked in Indian law some before I worked with the Western band of Cherokee out of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, when I was in Texas. And, uh, had worked, uh, so then when I became in the government, uh, I became close to a lot of the Indian peoples I had known before in Oklahoma and elsewhere. Uh, because I was in both their lawyer and their opposition, <laughs> depending on what the case was. Maybe more than anything else, um, the Indian Claims Act cases were my uh, primary experiential background because, and I think if you want to get the sweep of these problems, um, it's extremely hard to do, and you, know, you have to go to other countries do it too, I think, but basically by 1946, the Congress was simply exhausted, or felt so, by claims of Indian people for all the six types of claims that the Indian Claims Act uh, identifies. And my judgment, although I wasn't there at the time, but I had to study it intimately in, in the 60s. <clears throat> More than for any other reason, <clears throat> enacted this Claim Settlement Act to get rid of the claims. Let's have done with it. We don't want you coming down and saying you own 
downtown San Antonio anymore. We want to settle these things and get on with our lives. That was the theory of it. And it was not, uh, as I came into Indian Claims cases, I had very bad feelings because um, after a history of conflict, they pitted <laughs> uh, the Indian peoples through their tribal organizations against the United States again. So rather than working in a uh, constructive way to, to create something, build something, recognize something, you're fighting. <clears throat> and you're it's litigation. And you got lawyers in there. And the Indian lawyers have probably over the years, and I say this as a person who's been an Indian lawyer, done more harm to Indian peoples uh, any other single uh, profession, and including politicians and administrators, even of the BIA, perhaps. Maybe that's not pretty far. <clears throat> but they've been, it's been pretty bad, I suppose. Um, so here you put people into conflict, and the issues are overwhelmingly fictive. They're not real. For instance, in the uh, Indians of California case, which was a generic case. It wasn't. There was a Pit River case and a few other tribal cases, but there had been so many mission Indians, as they were called, and, and there had been such a tribal breakdown, and there was just no way of treating California from the standpoint of tribal claims over there. So, so they treated it as Indians of California, and you register and all. And all of a sudden, you're supposed to. evaluate in market terms, you know, the fair value of uh, 76 million acres or whatever it was of California land, including the top of Mount Whitney and the desert floor of Death Valley, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and include what it means to have a two million head of cattle and a million head of sheep <laughs> on the land and gold discovered it. <coughs> Um, and all this stuff, and uh, it's fictive because uh, any transaction like that would not be an economic transaction, it would be a political transaction. But, but what do you got? You got experts going out there, and they're, and, you, and so you go on, you fight for years and years, in the meantime the Indians get poorer and poorer, and you wind up, we settled it, and we settled it at a level that infuriated the Congress, and it was peanuts. Absolute peanuts. I don't remember what it was right at the moment, but it was peanuts. You know, I mean, it was nothing. It was all this for nothing. You know? It was less than, it may have been $15 million. I don't really remember. It may have been $50 million, but it was peanuts. Yeah. So, as I came to the Alaska Natives, and, and the whole philosophy of it, when you think about it too, is what you would call termination. Uh, not termination in the Eisenhower period sense of we don't recognize, we terminate our relationship with the Menominee tribe or something like that, <clears throat> but termination in a more profound sense that it's over. It's terminated. Whatever happened, happened. You have been paid. Sure, we ran over you with our truck and, you know, wiped out most of your family and broke both your legs and fractured your skull, but we've paid you for it. 
We don't want to see anymore. It's terminated. That's, <coughs> that was the philosophy. And I, so as I came to the Alaska Natives, I wanted something that was more than that, <laughs> give them dignity, <coughs> recognition, and uh, a future of choice. <coughs> that they could live in their villages, uh, they could hunt and fish, uh, the caribou would be there for them. If they could um, share in the development uh, of the state, the timber, and the oil. They could keep um, vast areas in a pristine or comparatively pristine condition. We had this came out right at the time of what we call the field report. Right. Uh, it was against the background of that data, in part. Was, in addition to my Indian stuff, I've done all this riot stuff, so I'd be looking at the watch riots, and <clears throat> I'd see how the per capita income in watch is a fraction of per capita income in the rest of the Los Angeles, and <clears throat> you know, how food poison there is four times more common than the rest, and how <clears throat> levels of education are five years, formal education five years less. <clears throat> Measles and everything like that, um, much higher, and uh, deaths from fires in homes and all much higher. Just misery there. So you look at the field report, and it was really stunning. I mean, it showed uh, a life expectancy of the native population that barely half the life expectancy of the non-native population, roughly 35 to 70 showed uh, per capita income, at least comparisons are like all comparisons are very odious, I guess, but native income is about 25% of non-native income. Of course, a lot of, a lot of them were even more cash economy. When the field report was done, they were trading and cash money wasn't over-the-counter people. <coughs> but um, you looked at TB or alcoholism, stuff like that. So, now, of course, the, the basic concepts and parameters were very much formed by events as these things always happen. I will, I will never be persuaded <coughs> that anything like what happened could have happened except for Prudhoe and the reason I knew that was when I could go up to a senator and I can guarantee you that um, if you had spoken a figure like that in a senator's office as an assistant attorney general, land claims of or something, ten years earlier, you're crazy, you're absolutely crazy, unthinkable, you know, what are you talking about? There's nothing like, no precedent, absolutely nothing. But now you could go up and you could say, look, they just made $900 million on one day's bonuses from the leases. And they all hadn't started flowing. And you're telling me you can't give the native people something? So, the, <clears throat> so Prudhoe Bay, for all the 
misery brings because I don't I've never seen oil bring <laughs> happiness to people and I've watched it I mean you go with uh, in Cherokee lands over in eastern Oklahoma and there's all that rusted out oil that was maybe cleaned up pretty much now it was certainly there when I was a young lawyer up there and it was there when I was there in the 60s and the Indians are still functionally uh, illiterate rate about 60 percent you know if you came in you sucked all the oil out and, and you brought in gambling and alcohol and, and women and corruption and everything fast living and <clears throat> and then you took the oil and left them with a bunch of rotten equipment and polluted riverbeds and, <clears throat> and well, all the rest well let me back you up on a, on a couple of points yes. one, one is um, uh, that i was curious about uh, <clears throat> is that through this whole thing sort of intellectually there are, when you look at Arthur Goldberg's first appearance in front of Scoop, he basically takes the position in terms of the policy justification for why we should do this. He sort of takes almost a pure, what I call the field committee approach, the kind of thing that you just described. You know, we have an obligation to do all this, to treat these people fairly, because you look at these very various components of their social pathology and it's a mess and we have yeah. a certain responsibility for this. As you know, there were a lot of people in the Native community who mm -hmm. viewed the whole thing not from that angle, but much more from a property right angle, you know, that a lot of affection for the legal fiction, which is all it is, of Aboriginal title, and that this is not another you know, Economic Opportunity Act for Alaska Natives, this is settling up a real estate transaction in terms of extinguishing Aboriginal title. And sort of how you came out on that sort of uh, spectrum, uh, it seems to me in terms of people that I've talked to, have, have to really sort of um, influenced how they viewed what was going on here. And I guess I was curious in terms of how you saw that mix, in terms mm -hmm. of did you see this as a real estate transaction, or did you see it more as a field committee social exercise? How do you think Congress felt about it? I saw it <clears throat> overwhelmingly. Now, we were all coming out of, of the 60s. Couldn't help that. I mean, we all came out of OEO, and we all shared that experience. Goldberg was Secretary of Labor, and it's uh, actually before, primarily, but we lived through it, so we all had that sense, but my sense was more historic uh, justice, historic meaning that um, they were here. This was theirs, not in a Blackstone sense of uh, Black Acre or something like that, in a much more generous sense. Of, uh, in a natural right, this was theirs. And this wasn't just uh, these meets and bounds, it was <clears throat> everything here. Um, we took it. process we 
damaged their lives in many, many ways. Dignity, perception of self, ability to live as they had and could choose to continue, except for us, to live. Um, their health. But still, it wasn't a damage suit, and it wasn't a property suit. It was a suit or an action or legislation. I went through the same thing in Ecuador now and another in Guatemala in a much more interesting way. This standpoint. Um, we owe it to our species. respect others, to respect their rights, to respect their culture, and to provide them with maximum opportunities to live as they choose, as they choose, not to impose our culture, not to impose our values, not our will, not to impose our jails and police, <coughs> uh, our And so we wanted um, legislation that would provide them an opportunity by their own energy and imagination to move into the 21st century. as they chose, from their background, from their culture, their value system, uh, and providing them as much insulation, as much breathing room as possible from the inherently coercive nature of our dominant culture. Now that, so I, I certainly didn't see it as a land transaction, a real estate deal. I didn't see it as a damage suit for somebody getting over. I did think that we had an obligation to, to provide as a part of the settlement something that would restore them to the potential for health that they had before our environmental and other intrusions on And I, you know, so when we started getting into things like the Cultural Preservation Foundation and all that, those things, the hope was that it would provide them the means not for commercial activity and enterprise, we wanted them to be life depends upon economic viability, uh, but uh, we wanted them to be a free people who can choose their own destiny to the highest level possible. And that meant they needed um, 
money. They needed uh, land. They needed what you might call technical assistance. Now, now, do you think that they, at the beginning, did you think that they needed as much land as they had already in their own mind settled on? I mean, it, certainly Scoop Jackson at the beginning of this uh, had used, I mean, I'll ask you about that in a second, but they were far smaller in terms of yeah. land as opposed to the native imagination. Yeah, I, my recollection is he was talking about four million acres. Yeah. Like that. Um, I remember fighting cases out of the Crow Reservation in Montana, where you could see the infinite variety of ways that Europeans had cheated Indians out of their land. I mean, they'd come in, they'd take it once, and we'd take it back. Take it from the Indians once, we'd take it back. And I just saw some white who identified the Indian reservation as a Harbor's place surrounded by thieves. <laughs> but they, uh, they took the land from the Indians, and so then we put a inalienable clause. I couldn't. So then we find that people come in, they lease it at uh, a penny a year, an acre, for the next hundred years. <laughs> what do you got? You got the you got the land tied up for pennies uh, by a lease, and on and on. So uh, I really didn't think that. Um, The amount of land was a key so in terms of ownership so much as in terms of rights and uses. If I'd had my way rather than selecting fee title, because that's not a concept that really means too much up there. You would have had swaths of land. It might have been twice that much for uh, caribou and uh, you wouldn't say wilderness, but it would have many of the aspects of a, of a wilderness. Wildlife habitat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More complicated than that, but basically that. Um, and you would regulate um, timber and cutting and uh, mineral exploration all that kind of stuff uh, to preserve it. I looked at the land. I, I've been looking at the land of the whole country, particularly um, the West. I mean, we own, when I came into the government, we owned 49% of California, the U.S. did. Uh, we owned 99% uh, of Alaska, we have some of the state. So you could, you could conceive of ways and, and Dividing it up into townships and sections, it just didn't, I mean, you don't need a checkerboard up there on the tundra. It doesn't have a lot of meaning. Uh, you need to think in terms. But uh, the 40 million acres, uh, I would have gone for more very gladly because I did think, um, except for being ripped off and, and trashed by others, I thought it had a higher potential for um, harmony with nature and Indian tribal ownership and native tribal ownership that it would in uh, state ownership or in, uh, in private ownership. Private ownership, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense for most purposes up there because so you own 100,000 acres uh, 
north of the Yukon, what are you going to do with it? I've always said that. What if a village was so grateful for my good works over the years, they gave me all their land? What, yeah. What on earth would I do with it? Yeah. Know, not much. And then you'd realize if anybody wanted to tax it, you'd be worse than land poor. <laughs> you'd be out of business. Well, now, it, it, we talked about sort of where you were coming from intellectually yeah. in terms of your experience. How about from Alaska itself? Had you ever been up there before? I'd been up there, yeah. I first went up there. You know, I started out, uh, I was born in Texas, but well, when I first went west and saw those mountains and all, I really fell in love with them. So I had camped and I'd climbed every mountain over 10,000 feet in Southern California. And I'd, I had surveyed down the International uh, Continental Divide from virtually Gunnison down into, into New Mexico. So I love the outdoors, and when I was just a kid, I mean a teenager, early teen, let me say, it was 1941. So I was uh, 13. It was the best trip uh, my mother and father and I ever took. I couldn't take my sister because she got car sick in there, so <laughs> we went up the inside passageway and I got off uh, in Valdez. Road Richards and the Highway, Fairbanks. Came back down the railroad to McKinley, as they call it then, terrible name. And uh, finally back down to Anchorage and someplace and then sail back. So we sailed both ways. And we spent about six weeks trip. That's the Alaska that I've been up many times since then. That's the Alaska I always remember. Unbelievable. You'd come into Ketchikan and the salmon fisheries would be there and there'd be barges full of salmon, thousands of salmon. Just <laughs> and and uh, what are those black and white whales that jump? Orcas? Yeah, jumping as you're coming up in there. Then you get up into the mainland and you're driving along and there, a little baby porcupine just been born and the mother and here little foxes going over here and there's a big moose. And, <clears throat> and um, mountain sheep, and uh, and then you'd see herds of caribou. It would be hundreds, hundreds, thousands, and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of caribou, endless herds of them. You've never seen a movie like that, you know, with the stampedes and all. Maybe just the wildlife was unbelievable. Uh, we came down the railroad a little. They had a car you put on the river. It doesn't make much noise, so the animals don't hear you coming like they do a train. And, uh, oh, you had to go very slow because there'd be a moose stand there and jumping across. Just an unbelievable. And the eagles, and fabulous, untouched country, 1941. That uh, was before the military hadn't really got there. And yeah, it's interesting. Um, people were talking about war. We were living in California. Father, a lawyer in the West Coast Division of the Antitrust, West Coast Section of the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice, what they call P5. <clears throat> the, uh, the military was, of course, nothing like it's been since, but it was there, and they were talking about war. We hadn't heard that in California. 
but we were, I remember my dad and I talked about it many times over the years, particularly after Pearl Harbor. Before Pearl Harbor, we thought, this is strange, really. Because, you know, we still thought of the Japanese as these um, good gardeners. You know? <laughs> That's how everybody thought of them in California. They were green grocers and, and, and uh, farmers, gardeners. Hmm. Well, now, one set of folks we haven't touched on yet is I know that you're involved by uh, by July of '69 because I, the first sort of sighting I have of you in the, in the records, I know that you went up to, to Juneau with AFN and met with with uh, Keith Miller, who had taken Wally Hickel's place as governor. I don't know whether you remember all this. Yeah, I remember. But, uh, uh, what did you think at the time in terms of when you met your clients? Uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, I guess at that time AFN was being run by Emil Mahdi and yeah. John Borbridge and. There were some other ones, but how did you find them as compared to, say, other Indian leaders that you dealt with? Uh, they seemed to have an idea what was going on. Were they lacking in basic knowledge or sophisticated? How did you see that? Hmm. Um, well, there's, you know, personal chemistry measures a lot of this. Uh, Emil Nadi immediately. Affected me as an extraordinary, decent, wise, gentle, caring, and while a little mystical, good leader. I thought Emo was, I'd known a lot of Indian leaders by the time. I worked with my Indian claim settlements and all this stuff. <clears throat> One thing they had, I really believe this. They hadn't been uh, working with Canadians later. I realized the Canadians in many areas were even less affected than the Alaskans. And you could see it in their art. Their Indian art remained pure for a long, much longer time. In Alaska, it was kind of commercial. I mean, you could tell it was kind of like the Indians in Santa Fe, where they were, you know, the people, the tourists come by and they're sitting there. They look like a, you know, a wooden Indian. The, um, they hadn't been as affected by cunning and culture and ripoffs. They were still living a, a more uh, frontier, pragmatic, uh, hard-headed, close to the earth. Uh, John Warbridge, um, Emo was the one I felt closest to all from the moment. I mean, it's just one of those things. I really respected them. I loved them. I still do. I, I never, never get to see him. But we were going to spend the winter in the Yukon. Just take a few books and sit in there and talk, <laughs> sleep and eat. <laughs> we never got around to it. <clears throat> John, I really liked to. I thought he school teacher and a um, little bit of removal by that I mean, book learning. Mm. Uh, the Eskimos, um, <clears throat> the uh, senior Hobson, 
was someone I always felt you could deal with and, and rely on and work with. Um, <clears throat> Willie Hensley was quite different. <clears throat> Willie was, he'd been to George Washington University or wherever it was, <clears throat> but he was very bright. I felt had an enormous potential for political <clears throat> leadership <clears throat> in a very, a very difficult uh, political context. But, I mean, if he'd been any place, he was just a savvy, politically instinctively quick uh, person committed uh, to his people. Some of the leadership, I felt, was very uh, materialistic, only materialistic. You never hear them talking about the villages and the people and what they needed. They were much more likely to be thinking of power and control and uh, balance sheets, money royalty, <clears throat> stuff like that. They had an instinct. I really felt uh, the biggest challenge, though, was to prevent division within the leadership <clears throat> until at least, hopefully forever, of course, but until at least achieved by any chips in, in, in unity. <clears throat> so the Arctic Slope must have presented a big problem for you. It did, yeah. It did. Uh, a big problem. And I'm not uh, good at that. I'm, uh, you know, I'm inclined to say what I think and um, try and reason things out. But I, I felt under these circumstances that one of our most important needs <clears throat> was to secure and hold uh, the highest level of unity possible for the, <clears throat> for the legislative effort. And that was a constant uh, concern because I saw many threats to it. Great risks in, it, in this unity. I liked them. I uh, enjoyed working with them. Got up a number of times, but not. Uh, I may have been up six times. I don't really know during that. Well, now, uh, sort of going back to the chronology for a second, you basically get involved in the summer of '69 and, and uh, have this meeting with Keith Miller that. Is not particularly historically important, I don't think, other than the fact that Keith Miller didn't have the slightest idea what the state's position was, I guess, at the time. And by the fall, uh, Scoop Jackson... We met other people at that time, too. I don't remember who they all were. I remember um, well, the state senator, who was the son of the famous... Uh, oh, uh, Lowell Thomas. Lowell Thomas uh, the third or whatever it was, yeah. 
um, a good many. In fact, we had uh, on one of the islands. dinner where we had three or four or five maybe together trying to talk things through with them. And that was probably before the meetings with Miller. What, what did you think of Keith Miller? I was going to sort of blow by him here for the moment. I'm not sure I have a judgment that it would be worth much. Um, I thought he was so new and um, I'm not sure unaware is quite fair, but unaware of all the problems. I really thought it would be it was hard to deal with him because he didn't know what he thought yet, and that made him guarded and uh, inconclusive. Uh, I mean, someone like Scoop Jackson, you know exactly what they think, exactly what they want, and you can, so it's easy to work with, even though you may wish he didn't want that. Or think right. that. <laughs> the, uh, so he seemed uh, vague and uh, indecisive, and as, but he seemed to me to be basically a decent person, and not uh, not, an, not an aggressive person like Hickle. Uh, with Hickle, you you would have many clear problems that you probably wouldn't have with Keith. That's my thought. Right. Well, um, what does happen when the system finally shifts out of neutral and into at least first gear is, is in the fall of 69, uh, Scoop and the Senate Interior Committee finally, I guess it's November, they finally get around to holding their first meetings about what to do about all this. And of course, uh, Scoop, as I think we talked earlier, had, had that spring introduced the Federal Field Committee approach as his legislation, basically. And uh, I guess that that leads to the question of uh, what was your view of where Scoop was at on this? Have you, uh, did the two of you have a personal relationship before this all came up? Did he have views on Indians? I know he'd been one of the sponsors of the Indian Claims Commission. Yeah, he was a big guy behind that. And he knew. Um, that I thought it was uh, wrong in concept and unsuccessful in execution. It was a mess. They had you fighting the Indians against you. I said, just New Indian War, just in court with lawyers and put people out there in the reservation mad as hell. Why wouldn't it be? Three decades have gone by and nothing's happened. Two decades. I, you know, he'd been chairman of the Interior National Affairs, and a major part of my activity in the Lands Division that was legislation related was before those committees more than even Judiciary Committee, because I was, you know, doing stuff with Interior and other agencies. And I think at that time. We had a good relationship. Later it became uh, 
Vietnam War was affecting my relationship at that time because I was a big opponent of the Vietnam War and had been. Scoop was a cold warrior. Later, it deteriorated even more because of uh, my views of the rights of the Palestinian people, which uh, he was a big uh, Israel supporter. But at that time, I think we had a good relationship. But um, I thought his views of the legislation were bad. I knew he was stubborn. Got connotations I don't really want to have. But he was when he thought something, he didn't yield. You know, I mean, he, he was a tough-minded man. He knew what he wanted, and he wanted it. He was chairman. Um, he was willful. He wanted legislation. That was the blessing that we had. He wanted legislation. And I think he really saw it as, in part, the completion of the work that he'd begun in 46. Um, but I, I thought he was uh, a problem. I thought his vision of the subject was limited, mechanical, and um, arbitrary. Now, did you sit down and basically try to educate him at length on, on your views of this, or was your relationship in terms of the legislation more formal than that? Or no, I I certainly had uh, access and. <clears throat> An opportunity for that, and did it to some extent. But um, you know, he lived in Washington. He felt much closer to Alaska than he felt I was. He identified, he identified with um, what you might call Indian law and rights. He knew I. Had many conversations and discussed many cases and matters. In the four years I was in the Lands Division, and probably the four years I was in the department after that. <clears throat> but he's not the kind of guy that you can go in and reason with and persuade uh, about something. You might move him a little bit, but he feels he knows so much about him as he does. I mean, if you ever tried to talk to him about Israel or, or about the Vietnam War, of attempting to, to, uh, to uh, move Scoop Jackson's intellectual imagination. Yeah, that, I think that's probably as good a way to put it. Anyway. I did want to, and I did try to instill a sense of idealism and uh, history about it, a kind of a grand vision that um, we've got to do something right for Indian people. We've never done anything right. He didn't like to hear that part of it. For Indian people. Um, and it has to do it right. It, 
it's got to be generous. It's got to be big. It's got to be theirs. It can't be ours, you know. Um, we're doing something to them if it's ours. We're doing something for them if we give it to them. If, if we want them to judge and decide and choose. And maybe he moved a little bit. Well, obviously the the bill that the committee eventually reported that next spring, uh, in terms of, of sort of the AFN position going in, uh, with respect to the money, it was really quite generous in terms of 500 million, in terms of uh, having royalty, um, not in perpetuity the way AFN wanted it, but, but having it all was a pretty yeah. amazing idea. But in terms of uh, both the 40 million acres and in terms of uh, the regional corporation concept, which by that time, of course, had become as non-negotiable as the 40 million with the, what I call the native warlords, you know, who divided themselves all up into the regional organizations. Uh, did, did you attempt to press those AFN, uh, I guess, demands, for lack of a less pejorative, word on to scoop or or did basically you guys not have that much control over <coughs> over the committee's fundamental decision making. I mean, you must not have because obviously you didn't get you didn't get all that out of the, the committee. Yeah. So one of the um, <coughs> real dilemmas a government dealing with Indian peoples has, does not want to be interventionist, is the tensions and conflicts of interest between tribal Indian leadership and peoples, particularly young peoples. And um, very often the leadership's uh, values and interests are conditioned and fixed by a set of dynamics that create something that's not good for younger people or for the future. And um, very hard to break out of. I mean, you look at Africa now, working on Liberia, it's just heartbreaking. So how do you address that? You want their self-determination. They have a federation. I was representing the federation. You want to persuade them, just as you want to persuade the Congress. But once they've decided they're your client, either present their case as effectively as you can, or you tell them to get someone who can. Um, I was worried about the regionalization. I was worried about its meaning prospectively for the Alaska natives. And 
preferred to leave that in a much more flexible posture coming out of the legislation so that they could choose means and institutions later. We, we did try to persuade them Stevens had some very strong views about the statewide 
implementation methodology that Jackson was so fond of, and I guess that you thought was the correct policy approach. And, and Stevens was very adamant on the regional. I was for more flexible. I didn't want to get locked in. I didn't want it related to the state. My recollection impression was that Stevens was basically concerned about federal state. He wanted the state to have greater influence and control and, and the feds uh, less. Um, my concern was that the Indian, the, the native people, the Indians, asking me how they was going to get locked in to uh, arbitrary uh, regional corporations that would create great disparities between benefits and values and futures and all the rest. It just <clears throat> and would also uh, risk a lock of a handful of minor interests within the region, particularly, or perhaps for any region, so they could control and dominate and just uh, exploit the uh, regional corporation pretty much for their own benefit. Um, I, I wanted them to be able to decide, and I wanted flexibility, but I didn't see the desirability either being locked into a statewide uh, corporation that would have many risks of non-native domination and influence in state politics and political influence. And I, I always feared uh, <clears throat> the um, attitude the state might take toward uh, <clears throat> the native people and, and their power. <clears throat> Stevens um, Was <clears throat> his role was kind of unusual. He he seemed stiff and remote. He didn't want to discuss things. He brought his ideas in. He seemed to me very much like states' writers that I'd worked with in the South and elsewhere. He would come in and tell you what he thought and wanted, but he didn't care to reason very much. Uh, Gravel. Um, you know, was full of passion and energy, but he was consumed with uh, the Vietnam War and, and ambition at that time, which was very high. We got along very well. We worked uh, very hard, and I found him very flexible and cooperative. I, I felt that Ravel really lent his energy and weight our efforts, which was his way of saying what the native people want, I want, and I want to be big and generous. <clears throat> Stephen looked also like kind of an accountant. He had a, to me, a more mechanical accounting mentality about the thing. Um, we didn't work uh, all that close. <clears throat> the, um, Where was Greening at this time? Greening was alive. Yeah. He had been obviously defeated by Gravel. Yeah. So he was not in the Senate, but he was physically living in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So I've been very fond of him and close to him, but that didn't affect my relationship with Gravel. So I went through that a number of times with people. It can be 
hard, but <clears throat> but I was very fond of reading and discussed the matter with him. Of all these people, I've been closer to him than anybody, I guess. Uh, because of your dad or stuff? Or no, I'm just uh, affinity. Um, when I came into the department, uh, I liked Alaska. I liked him. I liked his values. When Vietnam came up, I loved him. You know? And uh, so we, it was affinity. That's kind of like Illuminati. The, uh, <clears throat> certainly from the standpoint of the Federation, while some members of the Federation were working with Stevens, um, Ravel was far closer, in, in, in my opinion, and for my participation <clears throat> and far more effective in trying to advance uh, <clears throat> the legislation. And the difference, it may have been, Stevens had a, a very political view of life too, and he saw me as a Democrat and himself as a Republican, which I didn't feel like a Democrat. <clears throat> the, uh, well, actually, I, let me interrupt you there because I was going to ask you about that and I sort of forgot. Um, I have assumed without knowing Sure. That in terms of of the basic policy decisions that were made in that first Senate bill, that the guys that really cared were Jackson and Stevens and Fravell. They had the most on the table. And obviously, those markup sessions in those days were all closed, so you guys couldn't be there. Uh, but there are also these other guys floating around. You know, Gordon Allett, who was the ranking minority guy, and certainly Clinton Anderson was was there. Lynn Jordan and people like that. And, and so I guess I'd have two questions. One is, is, were they involved? Were you guys working the Allard offices and the, and the Clinton Anderson's office the same way that you were Stephen, in Stevens and Gravel? And then secondly, uh, it struck me, actually just sitting here thinking about the war, that, that sort of at the same time that this is going on inside the Senate Interior Committee. Uh, you know, the country's coming apart at the seams, and you're certainly very active, uh, a lot of it in my political view, but you know, in terms of that whole issue, uh, was there a tension, you mentioned it with Jackson, but with guys like Gordon Allett and, a little bit and Allett, Clinton, yeah. Clinton Anderson, I mean, were you the best guy to go up and make the case to those kinds of people in that era? on the hill, or how do you, how did you see that as Anderson, um, I was a natural for a totally unrelated reason. He and my father served in the cabinet together. Uh, I dated his daughter, <laughs> and uh, he just always thought I was a neat kid, you know? He, he just always liked me if those things happened. <clears throat> but he, um, he was older then, and he wasn't terribly interested. And Jackson was a strong chairman. People didn't mess around with the stuff he was interested in. Uh, Allett and Aspinall, 
both a little bit of a problem, although Aspinall, of course, I'd worked with them for many years, particularly Aspinall, because as you know, chairman of the House Committee for all through the early 60s, I was up there all the time on all the legislation that we had before the committee because of my position in justice. But um, I think at that time I was still pretty good for Jackson. Uh, I was probably never very good for Alice. The um, Stevens, I don't think, you know, he, he wasn't a couldn't judge from Washington what was good for him. He'd have to just how he could work personally with him. With Ravel, um, it was natural and very close. But there may have been better, there may have been people who would have been better. I was pretty fresh out of the government. I mean, I, well, at 69, I was just out for five months, and by the time it was over, it was very short. And while I was, I had been identified as opposed to the war, and I had been out speaking, obviously, a lot in the government. People knew the tensions within the cabinet. I was seen, as was Udall and a few others, as the person who uh, opposed the war. <clears throat> I don't think that that was a big problem at that time, but it would have been shortly thereafter. I went to Vietnam probably in, um, well, 72. So this was over by, yeah, uh, by the way. I mean, I was, yeah. that trip obviously vastly. Yeah, that magnified many times. Right. That, but I had been speaking all around the country and was identified as, <coughs> as a prominent opponent of the war. Well, <coughs> um, obviously, they come out with. Jackson and the committee come out with, with this bill in the spring of 70. And uh, I know that uh, as soon as that happened, that, I don't know, that you went up, uh, I don't know, I guess Bill Iverson probably was staffing more than Peter Burley by that point. Um, but I know that you went up before the bill came onto the Senate. Peter never did much in Washington. Right. He, was <coughs> he was here and he did quite a bit of Alaska. He went to Alaska a number of times. <coughs> That, uh, I know that you. I was going to say I know that you went to Alaska after the Senate committee reported its bill, but before it went on to the Senate floor that summer of '70. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I've read sort of the accounts of that, of basically you telling them that this is actually a pretty good deal, and that it's going to, you know, you haven't seen anything yet. You, you've never met Wayne Aspinall. You don't. You guys didn't think you got everything you wanted here. You don't know any idea what. <laughs> What waits for you? Uh, do you have any recollections of, of what their attitude was in, in terms of of the Senate bill at that point? I mean, obviously the money was great, but, but it certainly was was lacking in terms of their view of, of land. Well, what was, what was the bill at that time? Well, at that point it was it was 500 million in cash, which was the in position. It was the two percent royalty, but only for the other for another five hundred million, million as yeah. opposed to the perpetual. Yeah. But I can't imagine because I don't know for sure, but I would assume no one in the right mind really would expect a perpetual two yeah. <laughs> percent.
percent royalty, so five hundred million is a pretty good deal. But then on sort of the two bone crunchers for the AFN position, one is that the land was only about ten million acres rather than the forty, and the whole regional corporation concept had completely disappeared, even from earlier drafts. And so this whole thing was going to swirl around these two statewide corporations that Jackson had wanted from the very beginning. Um, uh, do you recall, well, I guess the, back to my original question, but how did, did they think that you had done a good job at that point? Were they upset that the Senate bill didn't have every last thing they wanted in it? Um, or did not? I'll tell you, my, my recollection is very vague. And I, I don't think you can quite say they, because there were many they's. Um, <coughs> but my, <coughs> my recollection is that some, who was the guy from Kodiak? Kodiak? Well, Harry Carter? No. Was, um, there was a bunch of guys from Kodiak that suddenly appeared out of the woodwork right after the act was passed and eventually took over the corporation down there and imploded it on itself, actually, which is a whole other story. Uh, this may have been an earlier uh, incarnation of them, because it seemed like I can remember somebody from Kodiak taking I can remember some people almost, it seemed to me, in terms of the internal politics of AFN, who were opposed to anyone. Well, there was Don Wright who eventually, of course, yeah. stages this coup that I'll leave it to. Yeah, I that. think Don <coughs> spoke of it probably as not uh, adequate. Um, there were many who thought it was uh, I won't say miraculous, but they thought it was incredible amount of money. I mean, you were able to say that it exceeds in cash all fire land settlements in history and stuff like that. Um, combined. Yeah, <laughs> yeah combined. Um, But I think even among those who felt we never thought we'd be here, we never thought we'd have this much, there was a clear sense, which um, I share as an external posture, that you should never suggest to the outer world that this was adequate. He won't more because that's your high point. Right. If that's adequate, you can only come down. So you have to you have to go into uh, the next phase wanting more. But um, you shouldn't scuttle what you have because you've got um, a. Um, I personally probably. Wasn't concerned about the um, state versus the regional, although I recognize that many of their regional people were.
that that was divisive, so you had to be. You know, we still had to get things through the Congress and signed by the president, so we didn't want to break up the AFN. The possibility of the AFN breaking up was something that seemed real and was always a concern of mine. Possibility. And I had thought with Aspinall that the possibility of getting um, land use concepts beyond, I wanted them really just to have their land, you know. And I, <clears throat> but I thought uh, land use concepts <clears throat> and land restriction concepts outside of, um, I mean, when you start talking about acres, you sound like a Texas rancher to me, and they always turned me off, you know, because all they wanted was their land plus half their neighbors. That was the whole point, just land grab. <coughs> um, and I thought Aspinall might be more interested. We had talked quite a bit about uh, use easements. That, those sort of things. I remember having a big uh, discussion with him over a period of time on the Potomac and uh, all kinds of easements to preserve the natural beauty of the Potomac from <coughs> Washington all up the river. But <coughs> it would involve taking money, you'd have to pay compensation. So I had hoped that they would go way beyond 40 million into multiples of. 40 million in terms of restrictions on use in wilderness areas and grazing areas and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I don't recall any, maybe I just don't recall it, I don't recall any, uh, I recall some political bickering within the AFN among the same people who always bickered about it. Expressions of dissatisfaction. Um, there were times earlier when uh, a fraction of 500 million would have been more than we thought we could get. Well, you know, he was a good friend of, he prided himself on being a good friend of Native Americans in general in Alaska. Particular. I mean, his last bid was you know, 185 million in total. I mean, so there was, <laughs> you know, from there, from 185 million to a billion in, you know, in two sessions of Congress is a major leap up. Now, I thought the, I did think the House was going to be tougher in terms of values, but perhaps that we could change concepts and, and get more. Well, now. In, in that regard, before we get to the House, the one last thing of some interest is, uh, is I know that when the bill was on the Senate floor in 70, it pretty much went pro forma. There were a package of amendments that, that Jackson accepted, and all those, of course, passed, and the amendments that Jackson didn't like, of course, didn't pass. And uh, there was of those amendments, there's only one really of consequence, and that is that Fred Harris had offered a 40 million acre amendment. And as I understand it, that was basically not really an AFN amendment. That, that 
least so I hear the story, Bill Byler, who you may remember from the Association of American Indian Affairs, uh, indicated that he sort of came down and right before the Senate vote and, and was doing some of the public relations stuff. And he said that he talked to you and, and he was sort of aghast to find that there wasn't going to be any attempt to take Jackson on the floor to up the amount of acreage in the bill. And so that he then went out with, with uh, what's his name, David Hackett, who had been close to Bobby Kennedy, I guess. And that they had sort of, you know, jerry-rigged this rump thing with, with Fred Harris. And, and so I guess the, the two questions that come to mind are one, is that sort of basically, do I have that correctly in terms of how that went? And two, if I do, uh, why didn't AFN want to take Jackson on on the floor, or at least make the effort? I mean, you obviously were going to lose. You, could not, you couldn't beat Scoop Jackson on the floor. But in terms of uh, really making the effort to put to wave the flag for what AFN wanted in the acreage, uh, was that not a priority, basically, with the leadership? Or how did all that happen? Well, um, You know, the, the leadership uh, was never really unified on hardly anything. Uh, uh, Emo didn't like to come to Washington. He didn't like to spend. Didn't like Washington. He didn't like to spend time down there very much. Didn't like to fly. Either. Didn't like to fly. John Borbridge. Uh, so you, some of the guys who weren't too helpful would come too much. Some who could really have been helpful uh, didn't come enough. But. I thought that for this was my personal view. This is what I did for the AFN, or me as its counsel there, to be involved in a direct confrontation with Scoop Jackson uh, would be a loser. Because there's a tomorrow, and um, we could not beat him on the floor. We couldn't come close to beating him on the floor. And there's going to be a conference. He's going to be probably the key person in the conference. It may be something we desperately need. Uh, we would like to see. I favored. Uh, I was very close to Fred Harris. Fred. Had he was uh, chairman of the Democratic National Committee at that time, wasn't he? He was going to be something I didn't want to do it. I'd been very close to LaDonna. I'd been down talking to her. She had this, uh, at that time, called Oklahomans for Indian Opportunity. It later became Americans for Indian Opportunity. And um, I'd gone down for her uh, several times and remained close to both of them for years and years. I wanted Fred <laughs> to do what he did, and, um, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite about it, and I didn't want to be identified with it. Um, but I wanted um, Jackson to know, not that the AFN was trying to manipulate things on the floor or attack him or something like that, but their respected senators who have a background with Indian peoples and and in rights, um, 
who were serious people. I mean, Fred was one of the best natural politicians that I ever saw. And for him to, to uh, <clears throat> press for 40 million acres was helpful. And uh, I appreciated it, and he knew I appreciated it. But I'm not, I, I couldn't say and wouldn't have said, uh, let's go in and uh, try and uh, run over Scoop Jackson because he would have squashed us, you know. And uh, how, then how do I go back to him, Anyway, um, I would oppose the AFN fighting Jackson on the floor, and we didn't. And, um, we were, but I was, you know, obviously it helped us a great deal, to, at least psychologically it helped us to have a strong, serious senator offer an amendment to give us what we wanted. Well, just in terms of sort of making the legislative administrative record, at least there was something on the record that yeah. the, the Native community was not delighted with, with the, the land component of Well, yeah, so, of course we weren't. And we, he knew we wanted 40 million. We talked about 40 million. Uh, but we didn't. Uh, we didn't get mean about it with him, but we, other senators introduced it and showed that they thought it was all right. And I think it helped. I think it was a predicate toward getting uh, what we finally came up with. Um, well, the, the last guy that we talked about him a little bit, but uh, before this all hits the wall, in 1970, the reason, of course, it hits the wall is because Wayne Aspinall, when it's when it's dropped in his lap, refuses to to really uh, get serious uh, during that summer after after the Senate vote. Uh, did you meet with Aspinall? You mentioned a second ago that you had at least some aspirations that he might have been persuadable on some of these land use concepts you described, uh, he turned out to be, at least since 1970, intractable. Yeah. Uh, did, did you make a run at him, or did you stay away from him because of the war thing at that point? Well, I talked to him. Um, as I've said, I knew him pretty well, because for all those years, I was uh, the Assistant Attorney General for his committee. Uh, I talked to Mo. Who I always felt close to, I think close to, very close to Stuart Rudolph, uh, and Frank Barry, and all of his team. I mean, I spent as much time, the, the, the time I spent on land matters, I spent as much time in the interior almost as I did at uh, Justice. Um, I had done a lot of West Slope work, and he, of course, was reverend. His district was the West Slope. And, uh, so, you know, Arizona, California, all these big things, Fine Fan, Arkansas, uh, we have huge uh, city and county of Denver, which is a big water rights case that involved uh, West Slope diversions and irrigation and stuff, all kinds of 
request of Steph Snyder. Um, and we remained surprisingly close. In fact, after he left, he asked me if he was teaching up in Wyoming and things like that. He asked me out there half a dozen times. Um, and having said all that, he was kind of a cranky guy. <laughs> you know? He always seemed older than he was. He seemed like an old, cranky guy. And he wasn't easy to, to deal with. He wasn't easy to work with. He was kind of an arbitrary. Uh, He wasn't a subtle fellow. He was a little rough and difficult to work with. Um, and I had anticipated, uh, I thought we had to come out of the Senate very high because I thought Aspinall was going to be very hard on uh, amounts. You know. right, well, one of the things that was sort of curious to me is uh, George Miller and Wayne would be very upset if he knew this. But George Miller brought back uh, for me last summer all of the raw transcript of those closed executive sessions from the summer of 1970. Wayne Aspinall knew that the likes of me was sitting around reading <laughs> what went on behind his closed doors. I mean, I'm sure he, he would go. I, I, I believe in sunshine a lot myself. Well, I, I do too. So, so the I sun got into that room. I don't think Wayne is going to be very happy, that, that, uh, as, as does Chairman Miller now. You know, that's why he was happy to, to do this. Because you know, all those records, I find it ludicrous, which is a total aside, but with the Freedom of Information Act and the rest of it, the congressional records stay sealed and under the control of the committees for 35 years. Ridiculous. But anyway, the, the point of that is that one of the things that I did learn from that is that um, there is a major discussion inside those first markup sessions when they sort of discuss the thing to death and don't do anything. That that you, not you exclusively, but certainly yourself and others, uh, were attempting to move this thing along by trying to to ask Aspinall and Haley to basically take the Senate bill and mark it up and move the thing. We don't have time, you know, we're coming into the end of the Congress, we don't have time to reinvent the wheel over here. And that's certainly a very logical approach, except that Wayne Aspinall, of course, doesn't necessarily at all times work on logic. <laughs> and that he expresses, both he and Haley, lots of exasperation with everyone who is trying to get them to take the Senate bill and just put a few amendments on it because don't they know that you know we don't like the Senate, they're a bunch of prima donnas, we, as a matter of policy, we never take a Senate bill. You know, Wayne Aspinall doesn't think, you know, that the Senate can can, you know, hang a right hand, turn it a red light correctly, much less write legislation, blah blah blah. And so I, I knew that was, I knew that painfully. Well, I guess that was going to be my anticipating yeah. my question, which is, you would think if that was true, why did you guys try and, if you knew that, why did why why did people press Aspinall on, on something that would be such a loser? In that um, yeah. I thought it was important to do. I knew he wouldn't like it. I thought it was important to do for number of reasons. Uh, 
have seen what happens when you get legislation passed one house, the Congress expires, and you come back. It happened to me in '66 uh, with our um, Omnibus Civil Rights Act, and we lost '67 as a result. We got it through one chamber in '66, and it was very important legislation. It made a big difference in you know, civil rights enforcement and urban rights and all that. It was just something we had to do. Then both houses became furious. Uh, the other house wouldn't start with a bill that had been passed, and the, and the chamber that passed the bill wouldn't pass a new bill. So we lost a whole year, and then we came up to 68, and we got it through. But we got it through with you know, the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bob Kennedy and stuff like that, in spite of the presidential election. <clears throat> so, I, I thought it was important to drive to get it through. I knew it was late, I knew it was dangerous, and I knew that Aspinall would hate it. But I was concerned that as we got further away from Prudhoe Bay and, and the big bucks that the bubble would bust. But in a way, it was, it was a bubble. They hadn't done anything like this before. It was an argument they couldn't resist uh, right after Prudhoe Bay, but after a while, you know, you'd start looking around the country and say, well, folks in my district don't have anything like that, but we were there for Alaska for. The, um, and I was, I was concerned about uh, unity within AFM because I, I thought uh, our ability to hold them together, the tensions that you could feel, the internal political tensions that you could feel after the Senate had passed the thing. Uh, that if we had to come back, we might come back lower. I really, I really wanted to try and push through. And, uh, it, you know, I, I did talk to uh, who I talked to. I think Mo was the chairman of the subcommittee on uh, Indian. Well, Haley was at that point. Haley was, yeah. Mm -hmm. so what was Mo's subcommittee on? Uh, I can't remember. And Mo, Mo was not, I do not, I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think that Mo was on the Indian subcommittee. He ended up on the conference committee because, I think, because of Udall Saylor, you know, more than anything. Udall Saylor and until you really show up in full committee, I don't, I don't cite Mo in terms of his participation very much. Well, he was certainly a counselor with me, and, and certainly I felt he was a major player. Where was Haley from? Florida. Yeah, Florida. Florida. Yeah. The Ring Brothers. And he, right, yeah. Haley was a difficult personality. I, I think maybe the Vietnam thing had exacerbated that. I never really thought uh, that I had a good personal relationship with Aspinall, but I decided, I decided
side in later years it was just because he was cranky because then he started asking me out he'd write me these letters and say things you know that uh, were a hell of a lot friendlier than I ever felt we really were when we were in the government today uh, anyway I thought we ought to press for it Well, how about Howard? The Senate, too, I mean, I've already said this in a way, and you know the Congress well. If one chamber enacts legislation and the people who are pressing then don't press it in the other chamber, they say, well, you back? You know, what are you doing? We passed that thing for you. And why don't you? He said, well, Sharon Aspaugh didn't like it. You know? said, don't come to us, then go to him. So I thought we had to press. Well, now was Howard Pollock of any help to you, or was um, I mean, you obviously was a Republican at that time? He was off running for governor of Alaska. Um, and the internal stuff. When did, I, when did Nick Baggage come in? Baggage didn't come in until '71. Um, so this is all that's uh, surprising. I, I didn't remember that. Yeah. Obviously, right. If Pollock wasn't helped to me that I knew about, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, of course I remember. Um, Nick was always good. Nick was terrific. But um, Hale Boggs was uh, helped a little bit. Something. Why would that have been? Can you remember? What that have been? Well, he was majority leader. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I got him to talk to Aspen. Well, one before I get you to, to, to 71 and, and Nick and all the rest of that, the one last group we haven't talked about in, in 70, although we've talked around them for some time now, of course, is the oil industry. And, mm -hmm. and certainly, I, I think you're right about Prudhoe Bay driving, you know, the 900 million all of a sudden legitimizes all of this. Uh, the, other, the two other things that have happened, I guess one of the things that, is that independent of AFM, in the spring of 1970. Yeah, there we go. Uh, and this is uh, take two of uh, the July 20, 1993 interview with former Attorney General and AFN Washington Council Ramsey Clark. And, uh, I was just as we were concluding the last tape, uh, asking about the oil industry, and, and I had two two lines of inquiry. I was curious about one is that uh, having seen the internal correspondence inside the, the Nixon administration that happens in '71, uh, I know how preoccupied they were with the Stevens Village injunction. That it had really gotten their attention that maybe land claims could be an impediment to the actual construction of the pipeline. And it was interesting to me, when I went back and looked at the record, that I had always assumed that the Native community had seen that link. And it was interesting to me, when I sort of read up on it, that stopping the pipeline and demonstrating this interrelationship between settling Native claims as a condition proceeding to, to going forward with the pipeline was sort of a happenstance that was sort of done as a rump operation, not as an AFN policy call, and I was curious, A, am I correct in that, that, that AFN was not really 
attempting to use the pipeline construction as leverage. And if I am, how did you guys feel when this lawsuit came down? Surprised that it happened, or concerned that people would bring a lawsuit like that for politics? Or? Well, essentially, to have mixed emotions. Uh, I was you know, personally, obviously, I guess, delighted with, with the lawsuit. I, I couldn't help but see the relationship that it would have to the. Uh, land claims legislation. Yeah, I was worried about its uh, effect on the Federation because I felt that um, the rank and file of the native people if you had put to a vote would have voted against Some of the leadership was committed to pipeline or the pipeline. That creates uh, problems for the Federation. It's a Federation for other purposes as well, theoretically. And um, even if the land claims was only its only purpose, uh, it's still got its constituency, theoretically, the native people. I can remember literally. I think natives <laughs> that I like, and friends saying they're going to get rifles, <laughs> go up there and work range, and uh, they try and come through there, and uh, they find some bullets flying at them. They didn't want that. But I don't think the I don't think the uh, lawsuit alarmed me about the legislation from the Washington standpoint. I think I may have felt it was it could be kind of destabilizing on the Alaska unity. Pardon? Okay. See you. Uh, am I the only one here? Uh, okay. Or lock up or whatever you need to do. See you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I guess I thought it would show. Of an interest with the, uh, including the oil people, that their the failure to enact the claim settlement could provide an attorney to the pipeline because you could have a lot of angry native people on your hands. 
my recollection is very vague. It's the strength of the the guy's name. I talked to some ARCO people. There was a lawyer who I liked very much who had been in the Lands Division. I'm almost sure he came in while I was there. Uh, he, but he came in at a higher position, like a GS-14, maybe even 15, or probably 14. But he came in from private practice. You don't have much lateral entry in a division like that near everybody's youngster coming up. And lo and behold, he shows up, and he's a pretty big shot lawyer with Arco. He considers me an old friend and associate. And, um, I never was much on Arco. I may have a case involving one of the majors in Ecuador now. I love to sue all companies on anybody in the world. I hate civil litigation, but if it's an oil company, I love it. Yeah, and it's for pollution. But um, they were worried about Arco. Arco was in the picture this time, I guess. Oh, right? sure. sure. Uh, <clears throat> but there's a good argument to be made that, that Robert O. Anderson, the chairman of Arco, may have gotten Wally Hickler's job as Secretary of the Interior because of the pipe. They came by, and this guy came with him, this lawyer. He's a tall, good-looking guy, but I can't think of his name. And a very good lawyer. I mean, as a lawyer, a very good lawyer. But I thought, you know, it looked to me like he joined the enemy, frankly. I don't know what like. Kind of like so fair representing Libya. Um, not that Libya's the enemy, but that so fair's the enemy. Apparently, <laughs> they're both enemies. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, ship, switching sides is not in that dramatic type of way is not good. Unless there's some human right or something, in which case you represent But uh, Arco came by, and I, you know, I may have misjudged it now. Uh, was Gene Worley the head of API then? I don't know, I don't know the answer. American tourist. Worry was an old friend, but he's from Texas. He's a congressman from Wichita Falls, which is, I, I knew Wichita Falls well, and knew him pretty well. And he was close to Sam Rayburn, who was my, kind of my hero, he and Sam. He was one of Sam Rayburn's uh, middle aged proteges, not his young proteges. <coughs> his young proteges were people like Lloyd Benson. Jim Wright. Um, Worthy had become head of API. He's one of these genial guys. That, let me get him to be mixed up. It may not have been Worthy. Anyway, whoever was head of API was Texan Congressman. And Arco knew my relationship with him, so they kind of brought him into it, too. <coughs> and this was all just one meeting, for, or maybe two. <coughs> so they had <coughs> the former congressman, and they had the former 
law associate in the Lance Division. And they've been right on both scores. They were both people I like, respected, and knew. Um, to discuss the Lance claim, the Lance thing, the, I thought uh, they could see that um, however the Native people felt, about the pipeline, if they didn't get their settlement, or if their settlement was chiseled down, they're going to be angry as hell. And that, <clears throat> therefore, while you might see the, the, the land claims and the land's part as an, an obstacle, the real obstacle is the people. And I can remember telling you, I had people tell me, they're going to get rifles. And they're going to be up there in the Brooks Range and somebody trying to build a pipeline through there and they're going to be boats coming out. Yeah. Was this sort of Charlie Edwardson's contribution to all of this then, is sort of creating that? Remember Charlie? Yeah, I'm sure. Man. Was he the main proponent of that kind of view or were there other guys as well? <coughs> Um, Charlie was uh, very likable, very erratic to me. There were people that I, uh, there were seri more serious people in the sense that to me, Charlie couldn't be sure from what he'd say, what he's really going to do, or what he'd say tomorrow. Um, now, there was, there were, uh, True believers in the native groups. And these aren't big believers. These are younger men who um, thought that's what they believed at that time. Now, they saw that as it would be kind of like the, you know, fence in the range. How are you going to? Drive your cattle to the market. If they fence the range, you're gone. You're out of business. Too. So you, you got to go someplace else. And they really saw it as, as the end. Now, were they? I have heard that, particularly in 1970 on the Senate floor, that while there were not a bunch of AFN amendments, you know, sort of taking jacks on and improving this thing from the native point of view, that there weren't a lot of bad amendments either. That there had been, you know, rumblings from you know the Gordon Allets of the world and some of the conservative Republicans that that they didn't like, you know, that the, that the Senate bill had been overly generous. But none of that ever materialized, and I had heard that, that part of that Stevens did a lot with, with the Republicans, obviously, but that that also that the, the oil people were sort of out quietly, even in '70, telling sort of their natural constituencies, you know, southern senators and, and people that might view this as a raid on the on the treasury that, you know, just sit here and take this, we need this, this is okay. Did, do you recall seeing that kind of presence uh, around the hill as early as 70, or was it really later before that? I think it might have been a little later. Uh, I was certainly willing 
probably my feeling about the industry to take that kind of help. Um, I can't, you know, I now believe that you're mistaken about some people. And um, I didn't see Ted Stevens as a very able person. I now recognize that he's an able person. You may disagree with him, but he's an able person. He endures and he accomplishes. Whether he was actually influential at that time or not, in any serious way, with other Republicans, um, I can't be sure. I didn't really think so. But uh, since I've misjudged him anyway, maybe you know I wouldn't be privy to most of the inter-Republican um, contacts. I, I really felt that. Um, Jackson gave us a lot more in his bill than we could have gotten any other way. He brought us up to a very high level, didn't give us everything we wanted, particularly on the land, meaning pay us in one. <coughs> but that it was his position and influence in the Senate that accomplished that. And um, the Republicans didn't want to fight the Speaker Jackson. Alec didn't want to fight the Speaker Jackson, in my opinion. Uh, and I don't think the oil companies uh, made a big difference either. So what I'm really saying, I guess, is that my judgment, based on the on the parts that I saw was it to a much higher degree than most legislation of this complexity and magnitude involving something out of a senator's state. Uh, Scoop Jackson had the overwhelming influence in achieving the dimensions of the legislation that came out of the Senate. Well, um, also the thing, had, had Scoop been a friend of your dad's or something? Bill Van Ness had told me that he thought that there was some relationship in terms of the U2 Clarks and Scoop that uh -huh. he thought might have facilitated your access to Jackson. I think they knew each other, but I don't think, I don't know that they, uh, I think dad was closer to Maggie, as you call him. Truman was closer to Maggie. I don't remember even ever seeing the two of them together or um, seeing pictures of them together. You mean your dad and Jackson? Dad and Jackson, yeah. But they, they knew each other. Right, but they weren't like social, old no, social. No, no. I, I don't think so. Well, uh, that pretty well takes us through 70. The, the major event of 71, which makes everything else possible, is through an amazing set of bizarre events. The Nixon administration, basically, that spring of '71, coming over and enrolling in the Interior Department and, and uh, basically adopting in the aggregate the Navy position, which 
opened all the doors technically to make, to make it happen. Uh, in terms of, of that event, uh, the first thing that makes it possible, of course, is that Don Wright ends up getting elected president of the Alaska Federation of Natives. Uh, did that surprise you when it happened? Uh, were you delighted, appalled, uh, <laughs> excited, horrified? Uh, what, what was your view of, of Don coming out of left field like that? Well, um, anyway, at the most basic level, I thought it was none of my business. And I really feel that way. I mean, I, I, I work in foreign countries all the time. It's none of my business. I've got my people I like, but I'm not supposed to choose. And having said all that, personally, I was extremely fond of evil, totally committed to him. I thought he represented the best of the aspirations of the native people. <coughs> I had a quite negative reaction to Don. I thought he was uh, small, self-centered, brittle. It's, it may be a mistake, but I, when I talked with Emo, I felt like I was with the spirit of the true Athabasca people. This, this is who they are. This and uh, with Don, I didn't get that feeling at all. I, mean, I, I, I thought he was tough, uh, pragmatic. I thought the, the election reflected uh, personal ambitions that endangered uh, unity at a critically difficult time. I certainly didn't foresee that this would help with the uh, Nixon administration. <clears throat> uh, so it, it, uh, it worried me very much. Yeah. Okay, well, well, Don's uh, major contribution to all of this, ironically, is, is that he gets hooked up again through a serendipity, more than anything, uh, with Adrian Parmenter. And Parmenter is the guy that basically counsels Don to, you know, that basically the sort of Ramsey Clark trust Scoop Jackson approach is the correct approach, and that's as good as you're going to get. But, but Clark is right about that, unless you can get the administration on your side. And if you can't get the administration, then everything that's gone on so far is absolutely analytically correct. But that you ought to try to get the administration. Now, you know, that all worked out stunningly well. You know, it broke the dam. Every, you know, it's, everybody's delighted with that. And, and sort of Monday morning quarterbacking uh, is perplexing as to why there wasn't at least some effort to go to explore that avenue earlier than, than Don Wright and Parma. <coughs> in my thinking about it, I mean, obviously, since since you were probably Millhouse's least favorite former public servant, you know, sending you down to knock on the door at the White House to, to you know, to plead the brief with a bunch of ne'er-do-well natives is not a good idea. So, but, but you obviously had Tom Kiefel, uh 
yeah, was his role. Yeah. And and obviously Ed Weinberg had done a lot of work. And I know I've seen that Kiko seemed to be sort of marginally involved, visited some, you know, Hatfield and some of these people, but it was not I guess my assumption is I've always assumed that Kiko really was not very active in all of this. But but I guess my question is, was there ever before this whole thing with, with Don Wright and Parmetter, was there ever any thought in terms of of the operation that you folks were running of, of sending Kiko or somebody else at least down to explore that with the administration, or, or did it just not cross anybody's mind? At the time? No, no, I think it was... Uh, you know, everybody knew, but I told them that... Uh, and I don't remember Arthur on this. It's just a matter of degree difference. It wasn't just, there's nothing I could do with the Nixon administration for them. And the reason that uh, Kekel and, uh, and the guy who did his work, who was, who was Ed Weinberg, who was her boy with 20 years of experience in the solicitor's office, brilliant, able guy, were in there was to handle the other side of the aisle and the administration. <clears throat> but primarily, primarily is not the right word, but to take the leadership on the administration side. <clears throat> Kiko, who I, you know, I was fond of him primarily because or a Warren like him, but he seemed to be a good guy. He seemed to have been <coughs> a decent senator, not a strong senator necessarily, but a decent senator, a well-motivated person. But I was, uh, I didn't feel that he carried uh, the ball. I didn't, you know, I just didn't think we were getting anywhere there, and I, I didn't know whether it was because was from California, Nixon was from California, I didn't know what their total relationship and history was. Uh, well, he had taken Nixon's seat when Nixon became vice president, of course, yeah. But that doesn't, I, I didn't know what their total relationship was and how, why, but it was hoped that he could do whatever could be done there. So I had come to the assumption that, um, couldn't get more support out of the administration. For whatever reasons, we weren't going to get it. And I have, I believe when I saw what happened, and um, I believe until this conversation at least, that something changed. Not that, I mean, the Nixon administration existed, it was there executive branch it had enormous influence in the Congress. Uh, <clears throat> what it would say or do could make a, a staggering difference. And uh, I'd just come out of an administration. I knew that. Uh, you, in a sense, you were working with some of the lesser powers, uh, except when you're working with Scoop Jackson or something like that, working the Hill. 
my advice, that is what I was told, and, uh, and my opinion was that for whatever reasons, uh, we wouldn't get more assistance out of the administration. And when I say we, I don't mean me, I mean the natives, natives this legislation, than uh, what we're getting. Uh, I couldn't do it anyway, but I didn't. I mean, it been kind of ridiculous uh, for me to go to them, even if I could, and seem to be taking the thing away from Scoot Jackson. But we had hoped that they would come in, just as I would have, I hoped that Fred Harris would come in. But I didn't go down there and put my arm around his shoulder and say, you know, let's go bloody Scoot's nose. So I didn't think that was a way to get the best bill out that we could get. Why did, I would never have expected you or Arthur Goldberg to be in it, but Kiko always seemed to me, and I was always curious as to why he didn't at least go down and explore it. And, uh, and well, I, I don't know that he didn't. I can't remember him. He was very austere about the whole thing. Ed I'd worked with for years and knew Ed well. And Ed was a pro. I mean, Ed, Working, he's trying to become probably acting sister. Right, right? the last six months. Yeah. Um, he'd been deputy for power and water or whatever. Um, I thought they'd gotten, I thought they'd made the effort. I was a little concerned that it might not be quite. The approach, but on paper it looked good. I didn't know that. I didn't know the intimacies. I mean, sometimes a person you like the least is someone who's right from your state and uh, right from your section of the party and takes your seat and all the rest. But there was a time when he crossed you, you know, and you don't. You, you've never liked him since then, but you've always smiled at each other and gone along. Uh, anyway. We didn't, we didn't get more than, than we got, and I, I had thought that they changed. Whether they changed or not, the idea that, and, and certainly the native leadership would talk to the administration when they would come to town. So we'd always urge them. I'd just talk on the hill. We knew that. Um, you know, the federal agencies had uh, as strong interest in this legislation as anybody, as strong as it all companies or anybody else. Well, it's, uh, most of the natives were going over and talking to the Interior Department. Yeah. As opposed to the, to the White House. And it's, it's an interesting... But we thought they were talking to the Secretary, and the Secretary in a way is the man, although I guess you could get the White House to come down on him, too. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's all a, a ghastly, pleasant mistake, isn't that? The only reason it came off the way it did, and it's a whole long story, is that Parmetter had, had you know, met Bobby Kilberg and, and Brad Patterson during the Taos Blue Lake thing. And so that was, he didn't know any of the people that actually 
actually made the decisions in the White House. But we saw the minor, minor little opening there at the bottom that, as it turned out, was quite fruitful. There's no way that, uh, unless you've been involved in Taos and Blue Lake, you would have even known who these people were. I had been involved in Taos. Well, I had to talk to them many times. Yeah, I met with them. Went out there once. Um, in fact, I was at lunch today with a guy who's This guy's a cousin of Leonard, Leonard's who's in the um, association. And then whatever it is, but I didn't, it's funny, I didn't get his name. We were just in a meeting on what to do. But um, anyway, the, um, the change in, or what I saw as the change in the administration's view was very welcome. Well, um, there are a lot of things that happened in 71, but most of them are, at least in my view, historically sort of paint by the numbers in that once, once the administration changes its position, um, uh, you know, that provides all of a sudden a working majority for Lloyd Meads and Nick Begich underneath Aspinall. And, all of a sudden, scoop, Scoop's running for president, and there's Richard Nixon saying that 40 million acres is justice. And how can Scoop say, no, only 10 million is? I mean, you can't let Richard Nixon be more generous than you are. And, and so all these things sort of miraculously fall into place. And, and, uh, and since it's really funny, isn't it? Uh, these coincidences created legislation more than anything else. If they hadn't happened, uh, if we've got any legislation at all, we've been lucky to get uh, $50 million and <laughs> 2 million acres. You know? Oh, well, I mean, if you, if, you know, when, I mean, one of the things that I have, I mean, I've spent many years now on the Hill myself on these kinds of issues, and, and I have come away a total believer in the, the importance Indeed, the demand of history for the idiosyncratic intrusion of personality in public policy. You know, I mean, if it had been a different guy at a different time, it would have been a hell way to run a railroad. But, but <laughs> there we are. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, I very much appreciate all this time. I guess maybe to, to, to sort of sum all this up, one of the things I've always asked everybody who's going to be on these tapes that um, will be available in the future that kids at the university and stuff, and that is, it's, it's beyond what I'm going to be writing about, but um, as you look back on it with a quarter century of hindsight, you obviously, I know you're up and probably don't remember, we met in 83 when you came up to give the AFM keynote address, um, but we really haven't been, been involved in, in the imp implementing all of this, but you've been obviously deeply involved in similar projects the world over with indigenous people. And, I was curious as, as to, first of all, how you think it's gone in terms of, has it been, has it worked out the way you sort of thought it would? Have you been disappointed? Have you been surprised? And then secondly, if you were going to do it over again and you were the Congress rather than just one part of the story, are there major things about the Alaska Native Settlement that you would do differently? Looking back? Well, you know, I've been 
so far away from it for so many years, really since the early 70s. People call from time to time and come by. I've been up there twice, but just socially. Um, I've just come back from Guatemala, where the Mayans are 70% of the population. And you can see possibility of a Mayan nation. In the 500 years before Columbus, these people had writing, books, architecture, astronomy. They um, could produce all they needed for trade and consumption with half their labor. And there can be, there can really be a Mayan nation. I don't mean necessarily all Guatemala, I don't mean political necessarily. What I mean is that the world has the chance still to permit these people um, to live their life in a decent way. Now, at this moment, they're 90% plus living below the poverty line. If I were going back on, this, I don't, I can't really tell you whether I felt this more strongly or less strongly then than I do now. I'm going to tell you I feel very strongly now. I think I probably felt it fairly strongly then. But I would put more emphasis on the native aspect. I would want more for the native. Native culture, the native freedom to choose. Because I, I don't really feel, from a little bit that I see, that the legislation has been much more than a, you might say, a minor aid program that has created some artificial alterations in their lives. This land, this corporation, um, and has not um, I can't tell that it has significantly enhanced the native Alaska as native. It's not that I want them to be anything other than they choose to be, it's that I don't want the pressures of our society, our economy, our political institutions. Overwhelm their chance to. They you can't have an Alaska Native nation uh, like you can have a Mayan nation. You can really have a Mayan nation. To me, it'd be wonderful. 
by that I don't mean that they should be backward as we think of it. But, uh, full communication with the whole world. It's just that we'll be better off, and they might be better off too. There's something pure about their culture and their way, and and there's a renaissance, and, and it, it's not you know a lot of these renaissances and, and cultures that never existed or have long since uh, pretty much gone are very artificial. There's nothing authentic about them. You see, you know, I come out of the civil rights movement, but I have to say that a great part of the uh, black studies interest in all are artificial. They're not true. You know, beautiful as it would be if it were true, Ocean and chains and slavery and civil war and all the rest destroyed that. It's, it's not there. It's not in the genes. It's, uh, and, it's, and the things you do are not anything that your ancestors did. It's your your imagination and your popular culture, your movies, and all telling you what that may have been. That can be done in to a very high degree in Guatemala. It can't be done. In Alaska very well. And then we, when you bring um, Telstar television into villages and things like that up there. Um, but still, I think if there was a purpose for the act, that it was more than this is where we began parceling land. Parcels, or a poverty program, affirmative action level for a segment of the population. Um, there were weaknesses in the legislation that failed to produce the native potentials that might have been there. And that's the side that I would have liked to <clears throat> reinforce. I, you know, we've shaped their lives through this legislation to a considerable degree. I don't mean to say 20%, but a considerable degree. Because they live and think in terms of these corporations and this land, this selection, and, and that has some very artificial aspects about it. Um, well, let me ask you about that a second, because I've something that I've thought about a lot in my own work with the Native community over the years, and that is this whole issue of what is culture. And obviously, when people think of Alaska Native culture, at least the way I think of it is both language and its ways of thinking about the physical world and, and attitudes about interpersonal relations that in, in a sort of a Marxian sense have all evolved out of the hunting and gathering economy. And if there's anything that I have learned from my work with Alaska Natives, and I'd be curious about what, what your feeling is in the third world, it's that left to their own devices, 
most Alaska Natives I know are as interested in having access to the American mass material culture as anybody else I know. And if there's anything that the Act has done, it has sort of facilitated their access to it. It's accelerated it. And, yeah. and is that, a, do you think that is an inevitability? That, that, that are, are there examples of indigenous people that have that have rejected, if offered, uh, access to the not only the American but what is becoming obviously the world mass um, material culture. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that the Native Claims Act merely just accelerated a trend that would have taken place inevitably anyway, or or, or do you have a view about that? Or not? Well, I have a, a view. Yeah. Um, Even in a diplomatic indent in Canada, we've been going through this uh, even French speaking Canadians. They're surrounded by Brits, they're saturated by US television, US magazines, all in English language. You can barely hold on. Just indigenous people, it's any culture. I, I, it's very hard to resist uh, the amenities of technology. I mean, people walking around, driving at night during the, in North Vietnam, because you had to drive at night because they shoot everything that moves in the daytime. <coughs> So we're driving along, I want to spend a night in a village where you know, you, they've never seen a European. Um, they've never been, I mean, the village has been there for a thousand years. They've never been out of that country. And so this youngster's driving this big old Russian Jeep. And uh, after a while, he asked the translator to ask me, do I have a car? <laughs> the United States bombing out of the Vietnamese. <clears throat> and somehow or other he has seen uh, somebody in a convertible whizzing down a freeway you know, in their car and looks like freedom and, and heaven. Um, if assimilation was all it was about, you read Helen Jackson's uh, Century of Dishonor see that finally she can't free herself from her own culture and she thinks the good thing for the Indians is don't beat up on them and don't kill them, assimilate. Uh, and I, that, there's something so, I don't mean to condemn her, I, I think she's a very funny woman, but um, there's something terribly arrogant about that, uh, we have to learn better ways of 
edition magazine on the city in Los Angeles. It was in Los Angeles County. It grew up after World War II, and it was just the model community. And now, you know, the kids are raping the girls in school, and the gangs are um, mugging the merchants, and uh, it's just chaos. I think there's a great yearning, a very great yearning, among many peoples. I find it in the Palestinian peoples, I find it in the Kurdish peoples, <clears throat> I find it in the Armenians, and, uh, Azerbaijanis to a very high degree, I find it in Indians throughout uh, the country, our, our country, and Western Hemisphere. <clears throat> Spiritually, there, there's uh, in um, you know, Bolivia and so many countries there. Cultural Indian cultural organizations that are coming out, and they want uh, they want their religion. It's very difficult to identify their religion. Some people sneer at the idea that they ever had a very interesting conversation with a Jewish bishop of Guatemala who's going on a peace negotiation about what he thinks about the Mayan priests. Very touchy question, you know. And I asked him today, is this a religion? Is this authentic? They, uh, is their purpose benevolent? Are they, With the regional corporation. I don't know the details, but I'm frankly appalled at the management of many of them, the salaries of some of them, are absolutely contrary to the spirit of native rights, human dignity, human rights. They, they act like they're um, you know, one of these uh, major Aggressive uh, merger corporations or something. I mean, they, they think this wasn't done to make a few people rich. It was done to benefit Alaska as native. And uh, if it's just a bunch of people who are ethnically uh, native and now businessmen making money that way, um, they could have done that in the marketplace. They didn't, this wasn't uh, necessary. It had nothing to do with native... Um, well, I, well, I, I used to say very much appreciate the time you've taken this afternoon. It's been very helpful to me. The one, the one last thing to follow up on, and then I'll let you go, is 
were those kinds of issues ever discussed at the time? I mean, one of the two things that pop out at me, one is the total lack of, of what I would call corporate democracy. I mean, one of the problems that you have... You corporations? Yeah, one of the problems you have with all these corporations is that, particularly when you look at the geography involved and the level of knowledge of, of the average village guy who's a shareholder in these corporations, that once management became management, to really run any kind of contested shareholder election over a management issue is very, very difficult, if not impossible. And they hold all the cards because they've got the It's almost like tribal leadership. Right, right. And, and, then, the, and then the second one is, is that um, it seems to me that, that um, you know, sure, there's Emil Nadi and there's Willie Hensley and there's John Boardridge and, and even Don Wright. I mean, you know, there's the AFN sort of click of, of depending upon how you want to count, you know, 20 to 100 people in the Native community that were swirling around this thing. But that if you look at what would be involved to implement the settlement with 12 regional corporations, 200 village corporations, they would each need a board of directors of, you know, 10 to 20 people, and, and all these people would have to know more about about what a corporation is than the average shareholder of General Motors who's just investing in their IRA. Um, and you look at Alaska Natives in the land, and they told you that there were no high schools out in the villages, that, that there were very few even college graduates, much less an MBA or anybody. It seems obvious, again, Monday morning quarterbacking, that there really was not a manpower pool inside the Native community that had any chance at all to do the math of coming up with the two or three thousand people you would have needed to really appropriately implement the policy judgments that Congress uh, codified. Um, is that unfair? Did you guys think about that at the time, or did it just was the land and the money and the swirl of it so that people didn't have the time to think of these sort of implications? Yeah, we, we thought about it. You didn't talk about it with everybody. I don't think there were general discussions uh, in large meetings. A guy like Emil always had, a, to me, a kind of spiritual quality about his uh, approach to things, and he was very interested in those things. I think as to the villages, there was a general feeling, however, that um, local people have to manage those matters. That, uh, you think they don't have the resources, but you try and do it from uh, Anchorage or Fairbanks or Juneau, and it's going to be hell. It's just a little place. There's just a few people, they know which uh, toilet won't flush or whatever the problem is. They have toilets all right. Um, so they, they ought to do it. The regional corporations uh, I worry about didn't really want and appalled by it in many ways. And I think it goes beyond the lack of corporate democracy, so to speak, and even excessive. I think there's actual manipulation. They make it appear that 
they had a big income and, and they take bonuses on it when in fact uh, it's, it's accounting. And, uh, so that may even be, depending on intent, it could be criminal matter, but um, you wanted to. Uh, leadership, and you certainly knew that the failure wasn't in the, the lack of human resources. There's this big debate now characterized by a magazine article in the New York Times called Colonialism is Back and None Too Soon. It's a serious argument, but more Significant, it really reflects major parts of what the New World Order is about and what the First World countries are doing. And it says outright in there these people can't manage their affairs. They've never been able to manage their affairs. The colonial days weren't so bad. Uh, they're going to kill each other if we don't go down there and save themselves. And um, the people who say that didn't live through the colonial days. They weren't that hot, really, you know. <laughs> And we didn't really leave them alone when they were trying to work out their problems. Because I go into these places where they kill each other all the time, and what you find is our manipulation, other countries' manipulation. Where are all those guns coming from? You know, why is it the Savimbi's there with guns shooting everybody? Up? It's not because uh, the African gene. It's, uh, if they were let alone, so I think they. But I think we locked them in. To uh, structures that should have been more flexible, should have been less uh, materialistic and business oriented, should have been more native interest uh, oriented, closer to resource preservation for native way of life than to property control and profit margin. But I, it comes back to what, uh, what I see from a distance without being able to examine it carefully, and that is that the act has put artificial qualities in their lives that aren't always good at all. Its augmentation in the floor, the economic floor, has been at all, for many not good at all. And it's done nothing to maintain the possibilities of a native culture, which means Accelerate their materialism, which is our, our culture. So it, it's come back to, of, of the three things that I had seen involved 
beginning, come back to the two that are least uh, justifiable or desirable, and that is parceling a little bit of land, providing uh, an aid program that turns out to be like most of those aid programs, take uh, AID programs, enriching a few. Well, the I can make an interesting case that not many people are interested in hearing, actually, that uh, the, the major benefit of the Claims Act was cre to create a big enough pile of money to enable the elite in the Native community to influence the state legislature uh, to put state money out into the villages that has gone, you know, because of Prudhoe Bay, that has been, you know, it's coming back to haunt them now because you know, they have all this infrastructure out there that they can't possibly support now that the oil is running out. But at the time, in terms of how they viewed their mission, which was to go and steal more than your fair share out of Trudeau Bay through the legislative process, mm -hmm. most Indians don't participate in state legislatures the way that Alaska Natives have. It's always been a very unique um, participation. That's not bad. No, I'm not saying, but it may be. I mean, that was obviously never an intended goal of the act, you know. But, but, but it's interesting that, that uh, I can make it. I can argue that case. Uh, In a way, it was implicit. Uh, I can remember when we talked about uh, the 20-year. What do you call stock? Court, right, stock area. Yeah, and taxes. Right. <coughs> That what we meant was that you've got 20 years to develop political power that will protect you from that being taken away, and you have to you have to do it. You can't just go up there and live in your village and wait until they take it away by taxation. There certainly there were certainly serious flaws in. I don't even remember the details of the legislation, frankly, of this matter, but 